Hi guys, I'm Maria Cicak and you have no challenges remaining. Welcome to episode 150 of No Challenges Remaining, our sesquicentennial. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 150th plus time. Plus time. Flush. But, fl- <laughs> I don't know. But my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen, happy 150, Courtney. Happy 150, Ben. How are you? You Are you are you all refreshed and rejuvenated, recharged? I am. Reinvigorated by your Portland trip? I am. I had the, for those who don't follow me on Twitter, <laughs> uh, I took a, a, a five-day vacation last week to Portland, uh, Oregon, not Maine, my favorite city other than San Francisco in the world. And it was fantastic. It was three days just by myself, wandering around, going to some of my favorite craft breweries and drinking and reading books. Um, I kind of, in this weird... Kerouac rereading phase. So I've been doing that. And then my friend Steph came up and we went to um, the opener for the Portland Thorns uh, women's soccer team uh, on Sunday. And as you can tell, in honor of the 150th episode, I am crazy horse um, because of... <laughs> not, not the Native American leader. <laughs> not the Native American leader. Uh, but yes, uh, I my voice is absolutely jacked from from Sunday night, um, screaming my head off for, for two hours. So I will do my best to not annoy our listeners with an incredible amount of vocal fry today. Well, we have a, we have a, a few people ready to pinch hit for you <laughs> um, on this show. We have a bunch of audio, a couple roundups of couple of the clay court events that have happened so far this year, which we're going to get to. Um, first, we'll have Carol Bouchard talking about the happenings last week in Monte Carlo, the Masters event there where Rafael Nadal won his first Masters title in nearly two years since uh, Madrid 2014. And then we'll go into some audio from the wonderful tournament now known as the Volvo Car Open, which is so hard to say, uh, the singular car, uh, in Charleston and talk to people there about that tournament and what makes it special. So to start off the show, here is my chat earlier, as Courtney was still on her way back, with Carol Bouchard, the NCR France correspondent, <laughs> who, who wraps, up the wraps up the happenings in Monaco, uh, where Rafael Nadal won his first tournament, uh, first Masters tournament in a while, where Novak Djokovic lost early for the first time, got his first real genuine loss of 2016. Uh, so some stuff happened, and it was interesting times. Here's Carol and me. Delighted to be joined by our friend, our bon ami, Carol <laughs> Bouchard, from who is the NCR France correspondent, I think it's fair to say. Kind of just coming back from a week at the Monte Carlo Masters. Carol, thank you for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. Hello, everybody. Uh, so what were your overall impressions, I guess, of this week's Monte Carlo tournament before we get into specifics? What, what was, what's your main takeaway from I think it was a surprising one, maybe the first surprising week of, of the season. And it's crazy to say that when Nadal is winning on clay, but I mean, <laughs> sure. I don't know, that's completely crazy. But that's actually the truth. Like, he was really playing well for the first time since maybe months. The French did well. Uh, Novak had his first uh, bump on the road. Um, Andy fought with his tennis, but you can see sign of... Hopes. I mean, it was it was a kind of interesting, like Federer coming back and playing quite okay for somebody who hasn't played since ten weeks. So overall, it was the first time when we weren't even you know that sure of who he was was going to win the tournament. Yeah. Before we get to the specifics, actually, I just want to ask you about Monte Carlo Masters itself. It's one of the few Masters tournaments I've never been to. It's in a tough time of year for me to already be heading to Europe in April, and you are saying that there are a lot of stairs. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's tons and tons and tons of, of stairs, but that's worth it because the view is amazing. You have the center court and directly behind it, you have the sea. Uh, that's a, a really splendid, uh, splendid atmosphere. And the, it was sunny all the week, which is not always the case at this period of the year. So no, really fantastic clay tennis. What would, what do you say makes Monte Carlo? Everyone talks about the view, but otherwise, yeah. how is how is the rest of the tournament? I mean, it's it's a a men's think, only Masters, which is a little yeah, bit unique. It's uh, it's unique because yeah. it's a little bit you know like not small, but you know the place isn't that big, so yeah. everything is concentrated at the same at the same place. All the courts are really close, so you can really feel you know the amount of people. Uh, it's crazy, and there are a lot of Italians, a lot of different nationalities, and I, I think because it's the first clay tournament of the season, and you have this fantastic view, everybody is always in a, in a good mood. No, for sure. You seemed to be while you were there, for sure. I know Courtney was quickly very jealous of the photos you were tweeting. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. And you have a lot of, you know, you have, you're between France, Italy, Monaco. You have tons of restaurants, nice you know, area to live. It's, it's really a, a really good place. Does it feel different knowing how many of the players live there? Does that give it, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them yeah. stay at home. Yeah, I think so too, because you can feel those who are living here are, you know, more relaxed, like Novak has a flat there, they, they're used to the course, they're used to tra to training on those courts, and the people, they, they kind of see them all year long, train there, so and there's a different feel, the, the tournament, the staff, everybody knows the players, so it's like a kind of a home tournament for many, many players. Right, right. Okay, let's go to the specifics. Let's talk with, start with Novak. Novak, the first thing that happened to this tournament was that Novak lost. I wasn't even paying attention to this match when I saw it in the draw. Novak, That's bad, Ben. No, but just just when I saw that Djokovic was going to play Vesely, I wasn't like, oh, that should be a good match. I wasn't thinking anything yeah. like that. And then he lost 6-4 uh, in the third. It was his first real loss of the year because I don't the, the loss to Feliciano with the eye injury is a bit of an asterisk there. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but what, what what do you make of Djokovic there? And, and did he show anything that would make you worried for the rest of no, the year? No, not worried. I think he was, I talked to him and he was in a super good mood since, the, since he arrived in, in Monte Carlo. He was chilled, relaxed, but I think it was also, you know, notable that, that he was tired. I talked to Vavrinka who practiced with him and said the level was high, but you could see mentally and physically he wasn't fresh enough. But he came on the court and I think he tried his best, but basically for, you know, you were, I was waiting for this guy to do something since now years and he had a, a bad like one year or six months and he played a great match and a lefty to start the tournament with against the lefty lefty serve tons of drop shots I think it's not the tennis that wasn't here it was more the brain mentally he, he wasn't quite there he tried his best but he did nothing you know he wasn't aggressive enough he couldn't find his return which is completely crazy when you're talking about Novak Djokovic so I think he needed he needed a break and maybe that's a, a blessing in disguise for Paris that this he has this week off, even if he preferred, of, of course, he would have preferred, you know, defend his title. He just couldn't push more, I think, this week. No, for sure. He's played a lot of matches and yeah. winning a lot, pressure can build up. So maybe exactly. this, this loosens the pressure a yeah. bit. Federer, next guy, Federer comes back. Uh, how was how Federer's mood overall? We hadn't seen him. Play, well, I guess he was entered in Miami, but never played a match there. Man, he was sick in Miami. I think the mood was good. He was, I think, a bit maybe worried to see how, how the body was going to cope. But when he, he saw after the first match that it was going, it was okay. The recovery was was doing well. I think mentally he, he, he ended this week being reassured by you know all the knees coping with playing tennis again. And his level was was quite okay. Unless he's maybe not moving as fast as he was before the injury. But for somebody who hasn't played since two months and 
and a half. It was really, really a decent tennis. Maybe on key points, you can see, like, against Monfils, he's still missing, you know, the usual money time talent that he has, but he's going to come back pretty pretty quickly. No, so not worried about him. Yeah, no, 7-5 in, in the third set of yeah. the quarterfinals against yeah. Songa is very respectable. Oh, Songa, sorry, I said Monfils. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, sorry, too many French winning. <laughs> too, just so much French success. Yes. Okay, let's let's go to let's go to Songa Monfils, and because yeah. Monfils particularly is on paper shockingly one of the most consistent players in 2016. He's made know, the right? quarterfinals of the Australian, Indian Wells, French, uh, Miami, and now Monte Carlo. Made the final of Monte Carlo um, and played well in the final of Monte Carlo. Um, lost six zero in the third. Malfi's also often gets loses lopsided final sets, but um, this was overall positive week. And do you think he can be in the conversation at Roland Garros, as Andy Murray would say? Hashtag Lamont for Roly G. <laughs> for Roly G, I think yes. I think especially the mentality, especially because of the mindset he has changed. Like it's not Gail like past years only thinking about the French Open and. And being obsessed of being at, at his peak this week. He wants to win every week. He wants to win every tournament. He's starting. I think Michael Tilström has found a way to make him understand that, you know, he's not getting younger. He, maybe the chances are going to be fewer and fewer. He needs to do his best now. I know he has started, like, <clears throat> a huge mental work with his coach, with uh, Gaetan, with his kind of physio mentor. I think he has matured a lot in, in the past year. And when he's when he's ready mentally to play his best, he can do he can do everything. There's no reason why he couldn't be in the talk for Roland Garros. I mean, you have to give him some hope, and he, he truly believes it. Maybe that's the biggest, you know, biggest thing that he believes he can win the French Open this year. What in general? How do French people feel about Gael Monfils? Is, is he generally seen as being, you know, uh, a great hope for the future, as, as, a, as a as a as a disappointing clown? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, where, 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 how do, I know obviously everyone in the tennis world has feelings about Gael Monfils, good yeah. and bad. I'm just wondering in yeah. France if the disappointment is greater no, or I don't anything think, like that. I, yeah, I don't think it's the disappointment. I think French people are aware that he can beat anybody at any time and lose against anybody at any time because yeah. that, that's Gael. We know that he's, there's going to be you know up and downs and you can't change him. He's a super nice guy. Just sometimes he's in like living in his own world, and if he has issues of court, you can't do anything on the court. So they're used to it. But I think this year, they're starting to say, oh, that is the new Gael Morphys. Like, he looks really on, and we're not used to it. So <laughs> we're trying not to get the hopes too high, but for now, who knows? You know, but the French aren't disappointed in it because we never, I think French people never thought he was going to be, you know, top five or number one in the world playing amazing weeks in, weeks out. We like the kind of craziness in Gael Monfils, and we have accepted since a long time that he's going to be like this, he's happy like that, and just let him be. I mean, that description describes so many French players, by the way. <laughs> Never top five, but good, you know, nice guy, blah, blah, blah. It's, 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 Something it's, in the hair. It's, a quite, it's quite a pattern that you had, exactly. Yeah. Uh, briefly, Murray, you, you said early at the beginning you were impressed by Murray. Murray made the semis here. He yeah. beat Ronich 6-2-6-0. Everybody's been killing. Ronich has lost some really lopsided matches this year. I don't yeah, know if, again, yeah. he was hurt or what, but it's, it's been he a played, lot of bagels for somebody with that big a serve. Milos played, like, two matches in three sets before yeah. playing Andy. Two-thirds and of tie breaks, yeah. He, yeah, and he picked up something in his abductor, so... But Andy was playing amazing, and, I mean, Milos on clay, when he's not maybe at his at his best physically, it's being so tough on the footwork. Yeah, so 
Murray uh, is there as well, and then Murray loses the semis to Rafa, who yeah. beats Stan, yeah. uh, and then Murray, and then Monfi. So a nice, a nice run for for Rafa for sure. What was Rafa's? And you, t- I know you talked to Tony Nadal as well. Yeah, what, what was the, what was the attitude in camp Nadal like after this I, match? I think it was both joy and relief. Relief to see that the best tennis of Rafa can come back. That it is close. Uh, and you know, joy that they finally won a Masters 1000. Like it was two years ago, he, he won the last one in Madrid. I think they needed that win to just you know validate all the work they've done. They've talked a lot. They're trying to you know be honest about the situation. Uh, Rafa worked his ass off on on the practice court. He worked on his forehand like crazy. So he needed to see the results coming that he wasn't going to do you know all of this for nothing. So I think that's more relief. Then joy that okay we are on the on the good way for the French Open because they only think about winning the French Open. No, exactly, and that's one thing I think is still standing in the way is Novak Djokovic. Was that ever discussed by Rafa or Bor- Bortoni that this was not a complete test of Paris because he didn't have to play Djokovic? No, I don't think so. No, yeah. I can't remember. I think maybe he was asked like if, if is it easier because you know Novak isn't on on the draw in the draw and he said no that's that's the same and but we're not in in his brain. Maybe somewhere knowing that he's not going to face Novak at any point this week gave him like I don't know an extra 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 boost. But I think it he, he, he was really focused on himself because he he knows the the issues he is facing in his own game. So before thinking about Novak, I think he needed to fix himself if I can say like it like that. No, you definitely can. And you said all of this very well. Thank you very much, Carol. Oh, thanks lovely. To you. I will hopefully hopefully we'll get to go out to Monte Carlo ourselves sometime. You need to come out to Monte Carlo one day. You just need to. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll definitely try. I, I, in the meantime, at least, I'll just stay happy being jealous of you. <laughs> Thanks, Carol. Thank you. So thank you very much, Carol. One of the other things that happened this weekend, results-wise, was Fed Cup, uh, the semifinals and World Group playoffs. Is that what they're called? It's confusing, the format. But yeah. Yes. World Group World playoffs, playoffs. Uh, to get in from World Group 2 to World Group 1 um, happened. At, at the top level, France-Netherlands was actually really good. Went to a three-set doubles match. Eventually won by Garcia Mladenovic to knock out the very uh, determined Dutch who were made it further than anybody would have thought this year. Uh, one set away from making the Davis uh, the Fed Cup final, uh, led by Kiki Burtons and also Rochelle Hogenkamp was playing for them as well. And Arancha Roos played one of the singles this time. Uh, so France gets through and the Czech Republic gets through yet again, uh, this time without Kvitova or Safarova playing for them, uh, gets through with wins from Stritseva. Um, beating Switzerland, who had a very underwhelming Pachinski, but a very surprisingly good Victoria Golubich. So it was an odd sort of flip there with Golubich winning both of her singles matches. Anyhow, that was the top tier. Um, should be a good final, I would think, right, Courtney? Czech France? Czech France in France. Or Czechia. Yeah, Czechia France. Um, in France. So for once, the Czechs don't get to host that final. Um, right. So, you know, you'd have to think that the, the French will put that on clay, slow things down. And so that's an interesting transition for for those players. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great final. Um, you know, you had the play, uh, you know, that both of those ties had set up like potential young heroes but then were decided in a decisive doubles that saw kind of the favorites roll through um, was quite interesting just because Kiki Burton's won her two singles matches against France. Um, and then Goli Bitch, as you said, um, having just an incredible weekend, really getting wins over Pliskova, 
and Streetsova. So that was that was pretty impressive stuff. Um, so yeah, so that should be an interesting final. It it we'll see kind of what field the Czechs are able. To, I mean, you have to think that Petra's going to be back there, but you know for the final. But but we're going to see. But a great opportunity for for Amelie Moresmo's France squad. That's for sure. No, for sure. It's, it's Amelie's first time as a captain in a Fed Cup final. So good for her there and on the more i think some of the more interesting stuff just by quantity was the lower levels this time in the relegation relegation happened and a couple big powerhouses went out and then in terms more than of a couple italy and right italy and russia were the two main ones both of which get knocked out of the world group for next year neither of those two perennial powers will be in contention in the eight group very tiny uh fed cup world group uh but they Italy lost to Spain and Russia lost to Belarus, who gets through and with Azarenka coming through an event and a tie that I'm sure made you, Courtney, with young Russian lady watch happy uh, <laughs> with a good three setter uh, in the sort of rubber match of the first reverse singles, Azarenka beating Kasakina in a close one. Yep. Uh, so for sure. And, and Kulichkova couldn't play because even though she was there with a, with an injury. So um, yeah, I mean, cool to see Victoria Azarenka play for Belarus. That was nifty. It hasn't happened much, yeah. No, and it was a very feisty tie, as uh, as you would expect, between those two. And then also one of the big ties, at least in my opinion, um, in the World Group playoffs was Romania-Germany. Germany goes yeah. through. Um, but, you know, I'm interested to see what the ripple effects of that, that tie are for the rest of the season. Simona Halep, after being finally healthy and playing through the U.S. hard courts, making back-to-back quarterfinals in Indian Wells in Miami, um, looks to be you know, all everything back into place and then now rolls her ankle in her first match against Kerber, um, continued to play on and, and obviously was, was or no, I'm sorry, against uh, uh, Petkovic and then came out and, and played a tough one against Kerber. But I'm just really hoping that that ankle is not serious. Um, and I'm a little worried that it might be a little bit more serious than would be good. And then outside of that, I mean, finally, Andrea Petkovic getting herself a win, honestly, <laughs> um, in Fed Cup. Uh, so hopefully that that kind of kickstarts things for her as well. But, uh, you know, it's going to be weird to see World Group 2 have like Romania, Italy, Russia, uh, Australia. The lower levels are for the men on the men's side has Spain in it, too. So, I mean, you know, Fed Cup right, and Davis true. Cup always have this sort of slightly alternate reality. And for a while, Italy was, uh, you know, winning titles before they were like a preeminent women's tennis nation. Um, they won a bunch of Fed Cups. And so it's always a bit of a different reality that reflects than the tour results. And lastly, but mostly, we should probably get to the U.S. beating Australia uh, on clay. I was very surprised this, this one went as lopsided as it did. I really thought Australia could win this one, especially with Gavrilova playing and how well she played at Hopman Cup and it being on clay, which is her best surface, and with the U.S. being without uh, Sloane Stevens, who apparently pulled herself out of uh, availability for it after Miami, saying she was tired. Um, then went on to win Charleston. Uh, that was a big win for them too. And I, I think Christina McHale, especially was just, I don't yeah. know if you saw that match corner, but Christina McHale against Stoser served so well. And it's really quietly had a very good start to this year. So it was a pretty, pretty great showing, I think on the road by the USA's uh, B team, because none of the top three women were there, but they managed to sweep a very respectful nation on a service they had chosen and built specifically in power after arena for the occasion. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that, yeah, there's two things there. I think Christine McHale definitely, you know, getting that win over uh, Stozer on day one was massive. And and it was it was a total team effort. You know, McHale got a point, uh, Keyes got a point, and then Coco um, 
got a point. So, uh, you know, kind of finishing off the sweep. But I do think that, you know, it, it was up it was uphill for Australia the entire time. Obviously, we know Stozer struggles when she plays at home on home soil, uh, regardless of what surface you put down for her. Um, and then with Gavrilova, I mean, she just hasn't been the player that anybody that we saw in January. So um, just really has struggled to put together any uh, notable results. Um, I don't think she's beaten a top. Uh, yeah, she hasn't beaten a top 50 player since Australia. Mm. So, you know, she's definitely mired in a bit of a bit of a slump or, you know, it depends on how you see it, whether you think that January was what was normal and what should be expected of Gavrilova or if what we're seeing right now is is her, you know, coming back to earth. It, you know, there's not enough data points to say. But, yeah, that was going to be an up to uphill uphill climb for Australia the whole time. But but good to see the Americans deliver so decisively and to, uh, you know, not stress Mary Jo, Mary jo out. Yeah. One last thing on the American patriotic tennis front, I guess we should mention came out this week, is that John Isner, uh, who led the U.S. to its win in Davis Cup in Melbourne a couple in March uh, on grass in Melbourne, so another built-up surface that went the American's way in Australia, he said that he will not be playing the Rio Olympics this year, which follows in the footsteps of Andy Roddick in 08 and Marty Fish in 2012, both opting out of the Olympics to stay and play smaller tournaments in the U.S. And obviously there are probably appearance fee considerations to go into this and whatever. I'm just curious. But it might be we'll see more of this as possible this year uh, in Rio, even though it's geographically not so bad with it being Western Hemisphere and staying on the same surface. Uh, but there's no ranking points or anything up for grabs in, or no ranking points for the first time in the Olympics, first time in a while. Courtney, I'm curious what you made of John's decision and if you think we might see more men or women, American or not, uh, following suit. I don't know if we'll see more. Um, I think that at the end of the day, the, the interesting thing about the Olympics is that it's not entirely about, you know, whether or not you sit there and you handicap your chances to win a medal. I mean, obviously that goes into it, but, but part of it is just like going because it's the Olympics. Right. Right. And, and, no, and Serena said, the experience. Serena, yeah, Serena said this year, she's going to stay. And that's why she said she's not entered in Cincinnati because she wants to stay and go to a closing ceremony for the first time. Yeah. Exactly. And I totally get that. And I, yeah. and I, I fully support that, um, even though it doesn't exactly help uh, our tournaments. Um, but uh, but, you know, you understand the humans aspect of that, of just wanting, you know, Venus as well to just kind of have like a proper Olympics experience. And so but the interesting thing about it is that when you do talk to the, to the players, there's you know, you get varying different varying answers. And, you know, Victoria Azarenka is one who um, I think last year in Wuhan, I asked her about her uh her or maybe it was in beijing her her beijing olympic experiences um and she said that like she never goes to the opening ceremonies anymore because the her experience having to like stand for hours yeah uh during that lineup uh in beijing was was just brutal and so you know she doesn't anticipate that so the, i don't know it was interesting because when she talks about the olympics obviously she's obviously a medalist a gold medalist and bronze medalist but uh she's not so like effusive about it she sees it as just the competition the tournament itself so i think that with john i mean he was in london mm -hmm. he made quarterfinals yeah he, he he's he's done the olympic thing and yeah i mean i can understand you know not wanting to put extra extra miles on his body and i do think that you know my question is whether or not because there is obviously no prize money and there is no ranking points how much those two things will particularly the latter with the rankings points because that's a big change how much that might at the last minute if players are not feeling 100% fit 
or, you know, on the, on the bubble of, you know, uh, certain incentive bonuses, you know, like if right outside the top 20 or right outside the top 10 or, top or something eight like that, preceding or top US, eight. US open or something. Yeah. yeah something, some sort of trigger where it would seem like it wasn't worth it, that they wouldn't go. But I don't know. I mean, the players all seem to really, the Olympics are the Olympics. And I think that the players do generally, Isner aside, uh, really feel that way. Definitely. Now we're going to go to some stuff from a couple weeks ago in Charleston, uh, Courtney, where you were not for the first time in a few years and you were sorely missed. Uh, What is it about the Charleston tournament? And this segment will hopefully be something of a love letter to the Charleston tournament, to the Family Circle Cup, now known as the Volvo Car Open. What is it that you like and missed, I guess, about Charleston? Oh, it's the people. I think that at the end of the day, it's just a really fun week. And anybody who has listened to this podcast for, you know, the years that that we've been going to Charleston knows how much Ben and I just love that tournament. It it, it holds a very special place in our heart. And I think that it... it, And our our stomachs. And and our stomachs, the food. Oh, the food in Charleston, phenomenal. You know, and I think that that's what's nice is that it's not just us that feels that way. I mean, the players all really enjoy it. You can always tell a lot about, I think, an event when you see players going back year after year after year especially when you look at a tournament like charleston what that is so unique both in its kind of uh format it's the only tournament that's played on on green play hard true uh in, yeah. in the states it's not really theoretically i mean a great clay lead-up tournament it's not a tournament that you need you know that you know would help you necessarily prepare for um, yeah, and it's a tough time of year turnaround to go straight from Miami hardcourts to yeah. this one-off green clay surface. And then from there, you have a long Fed Europe cup. swing coming up. Right, yeah. so you only have usually Fed Cup. So there's a lot of things that are stacked against Charleston. And yet, you know, players go out of their way to play it. They all are in a great mood. The all-access hour is always really fun. The The press conferences are fun. You know, I think it's a very different vibe in that room, um, just with the the reporters and, and, and writers and bloggers that are there, the photographers, all of it, it, it has kind of this very quaint Southern feel, but then the field is always a top quality one. So it doesn't feel like a small tournament, you know, but it has the charms, I suppose, of a small tournament while being at one of the nicer built up tennis dedicated uh, facilities yeah, the state, the main stadium and the second court are both great. Yeah, I love Althea Gibson Court, BJK Center Court. They're both great courts and they get great fan support. So so I love it. I think the only thing that would always bother me is like I think my allergies in Charleston are always really bad mm. in the spring. Um uh, wasn't so bad this year, actually. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But otherwise, it's it's a good fun time. And, and I was genuinely bummed to have missed it this year. So one of the first people we'll hear from in this segment is actually, I think when you talk about the people, Courtney, I'm sure she is one of them, is Lynn Corsi, who is a media tent Lynn! volunteer, Love. who is is known for her catchphrase, and we'll go into <laughs> that. Uh, here is Lynn, or should I say, she's here. She's here. She's here. Here with Lynn Corsi, volunteer extraordinaire at the Volvo Car Open, previously Family Circle Cup. How many years have you been doing this tournament? Long, as long as I've been here, I think, at least, which is five or six years. This is my 13th year. Okay. <laughs> so, what, what um, do you, what, so talk about what your experience is like as a volunteer. We don't have many volunteers on the show, so just what, uh, how, how did you get into it? What is your day-to-day like at the tournament? I started, the first year I came, I just kind of helped out like on a weekend with the kids' day. 
and I just enjoyed helping. And so the next year I kind of did the full volunteer thing, and I've been in the media center since then. Um, I mean, we just have a blast in here, you know, making copies, making coffee, but, you know, we're sitting in on interviews and crawling on the floor. And <laughs> Tap the microphone, that's right. That's permissive yeah. as that. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, and just it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy seeing all the volunteers and all the uh, all the media that come back every year. You know, it's just fun. Am I right that you're a pretty serious tennis player? I'm, I mean, I'm a 3-0, if that's okay. serious. But you, play, but you play a lot. Oh, yeah, I play yeah. out here. Yeah. Yeah, I play at here. At the tournament site? I play at... Yes. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. You ever play on the main court? Once. Okay. Once. That's pretty good. Only because they didn't have any other courts. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I've never, <laughs> I never played, I've never played on the, one of the main stadium courts. Mm-hmm. I played on Althea Gibson here, actually. Me and Nick McCarver played, played, played once. Yeah, I've played out there yeah. quite a few times because yeah. it's a regular play court. Right, sure, so. sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's fun. I guess, how does your tennis fandom translate to this? Because you're not, you're not out on the courts. You're not like an usher or somebody who gets to stay and watch mm-hmm. tennis on the year. They make you work back here in the, in the trenches of the tent, I guess. Yeah, but I get to see a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that most people that volunteer don't get to see. Yeah. You know, I'm in here when they're doing all the interviews. I'm at the all-access hour, right. you know, when they're signing all the stuff. So, you know, I get to see Venus with her dog when she's, you know, <laughs> signing her autograph. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just a cool experience, you know, that you can't do anywhere else. What have been some of the cooler moments in your in your 13 years? Anything that pops uh, out to you? The, the one thing, I guess, that pops out is Mary Jo Fernandez was here probably eight or nine years ago, and she wasn't feeling well. And I had to go to the pharmacy with her debit card <laughs> and her driver's license and pick up a prescription for her. Oh, wow. And for me, I mean, it was just, That's you service. know, it's just cool. Yeah. But it's cool. You know, I get to do that kind of stuff and help somebody. And no, for sure. I just enjoy it. Yeah, cool. So. Um, what, I guess, would you encourage people to be volunteers at wherever their local tournament? Oh, be? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you just you just never, you don't understand how much it takes to run the tournament until you actually work it. And, I mean, you know, Media Center might not be where you want to volunteer, but definitely try a bunch of different places and, and kind of get yeah. that experience you, you, because it's fun. You haven't done, you've done only Media Center. I've only that. done Media Center because I really just kind of enjoy back yeah. here. No, that was I mean, pretty, I mean, I like, obviously, this is my part of the tournament I, I chose. I tell so. people this is our little secret hideaway, and I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't see, let you, it you out. see all the players in here. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. you know, and our little media tables that we have back behind the Usher chairs yeah. that are really awesome. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Those yeah, are great. So, yes, me, I, have cool. to, I have to ask you about your catchphrase, oh, <laughs> which mm-hmm. which is a you're like seriously, Nick and Courtney and I, whoever else is regular here, we we will use it. Mm-hmm. We we'll try to do our best. No one does it like you, of but <laughs> try to do our best. She's here's uh, mm-hmm. throughout the year. Did that, did that start naturally? Did you realize that it was a catchphrase? I had it? no idea until Danny told me that you know it, I had become famous for that. So. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of cool. Oh, kind of cool. Keep on doing it. Look forward I will. to hearing arrivals from you many times in the future. She's here. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Next, we're going to talk to a pair of the media, of the Southern-based media, who come to this tournament every year. A photographer, Daniel Ward, and the blogger for women who serve, Diane Elaine Dees, who are both perennial fixtures in the media tent in Charleston, bringing their own Southern charm. And I should note, Diane got a very nice shout out from Venus Williams during the All Access Roundtable, where 
Diane asked what, you know, Venus would like to be doing later. And Venus said, essentially, just, I just want to look as good as you when I'm older. Oh, that's all I want. That's, so that's I think Diane, Diane's heart melted pretty clearly there. So that was pretty cool. And knowing Diane, that's totally true. Squad goals, because Diane is rocking it. Venus, when you get to that old and gray part that we talked yeah. about, uh, do you think you'll be maybe doing this kind of advocacy work? Maybe as well, first a, of all, I'd like to look like you. Coming from you, you are hitting it. I mean, style, grace, Thank you. really well done. Because <laughs> I think the same about you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I do have some grays in there. Very delighted to be joined by Diane Elaine Dees of Women Who Serve and. Daniel Ward, who's here as a photographer, also for Women Who Serve, both annual fixtures of this tournament for me here, both anchors of what I, I feel like is a sort of southern hospitality of tennis that you get at this tournament. Diane from New Orleans, Daniel from North Carolina. Thank you both, first of all, for being on NCR. My pleasure. Yeah. Yay. So what, is this, what does this tournament mean to you? I, I think of it as sort of the capital event of the American South. Uh, I think you probably feel the same way. I know that you're here every year, even if it's not. New Orleans and South Carolina aren't next to each other, but still it feels like a a real regional center it, for tennis. It is for me, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I think the uh, the combination of the food and the very relaxed atmosphere and everybody's very friendly. The players always stress that. And you're surrounded by palm trees and palmettos and Louisiana irises are growing <laughs> in the pond. And it, it's just very southern in a nice, lovely, laid-back way. Right. You mentioned the food both on and off-site. The yes. known for its food. Yes. I like to restaurants here. Courtney, this one, she's not here this year, but she is missing the restaurants. Maybe most of all, not the tennis tournament's bad, but the restaurants, the restaurants is where she great. she goes to town every year. Exact Fig, exactly. I was there one night without her. So, uh, Daniel, how about you? What does this tournament mean to you as sort of being more specifically from the Carolinas? It feels like it really embodies that Southern culture with the laid-back atmosphere, the People seem to dress in a sort of genteel yeah, southern it, way, the wicker furniture on the courts, things like that. Right. It, it, to me, it feels like home since I'm from North Carolina, born and raised. Um, it's not that much of a difference. But I will say, after going to Australia and the French Open, it is so laid back. That's what I love about this. I mean, laid back here, yeah. Yes, yeah, laid back here in Charleston. Um, I mean, I'm not a photographer by trade. I'm a pharmacist in Elaine. I mean, um, Diane is a... Uh, Psychotherapist. So yeah. to me, even though, even though it's a vacation, <laughs> even though it's a vacation, it's a working vacation for us because even though we work our tails off, we love it. I love putting in long hours. It's such a stress relief to be here, you know, see the some of the um, local now celebrities with Southern Charm. If you're, are you following that show? No, it's like that's like the Real Housewives yes, thing here, right? Yes, oh, I've, I've seen JD and Craig. Oh God! So everyone's getting their <laughs> autographs on. It's so funny, but but yeah, like again, food and just like that atmosphere, love it. How long have you been coming to this tournament? I guess what are your early memories? I, the first time I ever went to the then Family Circle was 1991, and I think I've missed five. And it was on Hilton Head back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, back in Hilton Head. And it grew from a very small tournament, and they blossomed down there to about an eight or 10,000-seat stadium, and it moved up here in 2001. That's about yeah. right, yeah. Because I remember sitting in the stands in 2000 when Mary Pierce won, and they announced it was going to Charleston, and the whole place booed, booed them off the court. People were so <laughs> upset. Sure. But nothing's really changed. Truly, it's the same same atmosphere, just a different location. How about you, Dan? What are, you've been coming here quite a long time as well. Since 2005. This is my 12th yeah, year. So, so what, are your, some, what are some of your memories of this tournament coming in and out here? Anything uh, jump out at you? Yes, weather. <laughs> weather, uh, tornadoes. I, I, yes, tornadoes. I remember the first one was, uh, I think, in 2006. <laughs> I'm not sure. But the wind was so fierce that it 
it went right onto the onto the complex, and it was knocking down signs and posts and fence. But the thing that stayed intact was the banner with Justine Inna on it, because <laughs> nothing could knock her down. Nothing ever. Right. right. That's, that's a pretty good Justine Inna analogy right there. She'd be proud to. Other that storm. I remember the yeah. I remember there have been storms here that have rolled even lesser well, storms in the past years that have scared Courtney because she's on the west coast. She's not used oh, to these she's storms. She's very scared of thunderstorms. <laughs> yes. The, the 2007 final uh, we thought was going to be canceled because mm. a tornado early. had come in, and the tornado was gone, but the high winds were still there, and uh, they played the singles and doubles, and uh, Yankovic beat Safina largely because she could handle the wind so well. The trash was swirling around all over the stadium. They had nowhere to go, and it was just swirling around. It was odd. You mentioned both those players, Yankovic and Safina, who are both former number ones, and as we were just talking about during a break in recording, that was unintentional, uh, the, this tournament's attracted all but one number one in WCA history, which is pretty amazing. We hear some wind slamming into the tent here. Uh, everyone but Kim Kleister's in WTA history, who's reached number one, has played at this tournament. And so even though this is only, only quote-unquote, a premier event, and it's not one of the higher-level events on the tour anymore, it still feels like a pretty premium product well, It's always been here. a star-maker event. Yeah. And for a few years, that didn't happen, and then last year it happened big time. Angelique Gerber, Kerber yeah. won it, and then she won the Australian Open. Yeah, exactly. That really kicked her off, because she was not doing well. And that's really well. like a Charleston tradition. Yeah. What, yeah. Are some, what are some other examples of that you can remember of players um, having breakout? Yankovic, I guess. Yank- Yankovic. 07, that would have been one of her first big titles. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, you just think about all the former champions. I mean, it's only a handful that never won a Grand Slam. That's right. Yeah, Yankovic. Um, Kutzer. Um, Pekovic now, I guess. Yeah, Pekovic now. But yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a stepping stone. This is truly a stepping stone, normally. So, I guess, what, what do you see as, I know, obviously, women who serve as a site to focus on women's tennis, by, by definition. How do you see the support for women's sports here in the South? I think it's, I think it's, it's the biggest women's only tournament in the U.S. In the world. In the world. Uh, yes, pretty. That's what, that's what it's... It's That's the oldest. It's definitely one of the oldest. Biggest. Well, I don't know. I don't want to quibble. Like yeah. Wuhan might be bigger by size oh, or something now, be. or other other. Yeah. But still, yeah. it's, it's it has a legacy of women supporting women's tennis. Well, does, I, that, does that reflect? I mean, I think it's very important. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm I'm all for joint tournaments. I think they're great, but I also think it's really important that both ATP and WTA have individual tournaments, yeah. uh, just for the identity. No, totally. And I, you, you get that here. I've heard Andre Pekovic say that. I'm not sure if it was on one of her. We used to interview her every year here for the show. I'm not sure if it was here on the podcast or not, but she said she liked being here because when she's at, and Stuttgart, which is the next tournament she plays, because both of them, they get great crowds, and you know that everyone in the stands there is women. there for women's tennis. Right. And that's something where they can feel like um, second billing uh, under, against the men. And, Ben, that also brings me to the Charleston fans. They're very sophisticated. Yeah. They really, really understand the women's game. And they come here for their favorites, but they're very generous toward those who beat their favorites. Yeah. They're just a good crowd. Yeah, they're, they're very intelligent. I mean, you, yeah. you don't see many really ignorant fans. Crowd. No, that's for sure. Yes. Venus got a standing ovation here. She went off court. And, and, that one, was of definitely, my, and one of my favorite yeah. Charleston moments is this would not have happened at another tournament. But back in 2010, when Sam Stoser pretty much ran over Vera Zavonareva, right. that, of course, was the scene of the greatest racket break in history. That was tremendous. It was like 6 0 And she and was, cheered, went, and she was cheered and applauded for it. And that wouldn't happen anywhere else. Yeah. No, that's pretty good. No, definitely there's a certain savvy and a certain warmth and everything uh, comes here. I mean, do you, do you guys see this tournament... Um, 
as as reflective of of I, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but in terms of the, just the women's angle, we'll go with that because then obviously that's a big focus of you and your 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 worldview and everything. Do you see this as a, a oasis of women's support in in the South, especially? I don't think of South Carolina as being a necessarily feminist state on any meaningful well, level, but yeah, it's I, still it still is a place where women's strength and everything is celebrated. I think this tournament. So, I think sometimes the support of women comes more easily if people aren't being told that that's how they identify. Yeah. They just naturally come here and love women's tennis. And probably if we tried to say, well, that's very feminist, they might go, huh? Or they might not. I don't know. But uh, I think that it's just a kind of, or, it's part of the fabric. Yeah. I don't think it would occur to people here to not support women's right. tennis. Because it has such roots here. I mean, yes. that's the thing. It doesn't. It's not a novelty on any level. It's not. It's always been. Yeah, it's always been there so long. It's one of the very first events for sure. Uh, anything, recommendations you would have for people coming to this tournament? Or what to expect here? I guess Charleston more largely, but in terms of your your especially let's say with you, Dan, because you went to those other big marquee Australian Open, French Open. What are the Charleston charms then that stand out about this one in comparison? Uh, let's see. We've already mentioned food. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Any specific um, foods? Give people more tactile recommendations. Well, coming from North Carolina, we have different versions of what barbecue is, yeah. and <laughs> what they say is pulled pork barbecue is not quite what I think is pulled pork barbecue. barbecue. That's yeah. the barbecue war, I know. But uh, I like a vinegar base, not a mustard base. That's Eastern North Carolina. So, um, but one thing we always prepare for we. I, I overpack with all my clothes because we never know what kind of weather to expect. That's it always true. goes back to weather, you know. During the day, it's nice and warm. This tournament can be pretty variable, being right at the cusp of spring. I mean, you can get some cold days here for sure. Yeah, because the ocean is still yeah. pretty yes. cool this time of year. So when the wind blows off the ocean, it's it's pretty rough. But besides that, I mean, you, if you get the weather, I mean, you're like two nights ago Packed when it was layers. yeah, two nights ago when the, when when Kerber went seven six and a third. I mean, you kind of forgot about how cool it was, but it was you know it was a great match. Just kind of forget those things. Yeah. So not for sure. And yeah. and the tennis is always great here. I think that's one of the match quality. Pretty much always. Some, sometimes draws can fall apart because upsets happen. That can happen at any. The tournament players this level. rise to the occasion. Right, but the players rise to the occasion, and the green clay I think is a really good surface. And it's yes. the only now the only the event on one. either tour, men's or ATP or WTA on green clay, and it's, I think it's a really cool medium surface that suits everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you're not a great slider, you can make it work. Madison Keys made the final here, and she's hardly, she's hardly, you know, a, a ballerina on clay on any level. Uh, yeah, you can make it work, for sure. And I will say that every every year, there's a surprise. Like, this year for me is Kasatkina, because I did not know, really know who she was, and I am impressed beyond belief. This The 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 uh, ladies in the top tier need to be ready if she is not oh, seated by the French Open. And I'm looking at Laura Sigmund, too. Who's yeah, she's just had a nice year. Killing out here. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. So there's always a surprise here. And that was was not a surprise as you two were lovely. Thank you for being on the show with me. It was a complete pleasure. No problem. And for Thank those you. who have never met Ben and Courtney, they are the most down-to-earth people oh, you have ever met. Truly. Oh, oh stop. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, Diane. Thank, Thank you, Daniel. You. Thanks, Ben. See next See time. And lastly, we're going to hear from Eleanor Adams, who is the tournament manager at Charleston, about her interactions with the players and the sort of bonds that they have formed with players who keep coming back every year and how this tournament manages to do that. We're here with tournament manager Eleanor Adams here at the Volvo Car Open, to get used to saying that, Yeah. who was just saying that this tournament has such a family atmosphere to it that a couple players, including Sloane Stevens, who was just in here after winning her third rounder, have thought that you and tournament director... Bob Moran were actually married. Yes, and Sloan's not the first person who, first player who has thought so. 
Uh, I remember at least Raymond one day said to me, gee, it must be like really tough spending every waking hour with your with your husband at work and then you got to go home with him and everything. And I said, what are you talking about, Lisa? And she said, you know, Bob. I said, no, 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 my husband's name's Brad. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. She thought we were married and, and quite honestly, I'm quite a few years older than Bob. <laughs> so that, that would have been quite a feat too. But... Uh, no, we have a wonderful working relationship, and uh, but we are not married. Not married. Well, you guys at least make a sort of, I don't know, mom-pop feel to this tournament in a way, and that people keep coming back and appreciate the sort of yeah. personal care and things about that. And I guess what are some of the things as tournament manager? I know Laura Siegemund was in here earlier talking about how much she enjoys like the gifts that you guys give to players and things like that. What are, what are yeah. some of the, the small and big things, I guess, that you do to keep players happy at this tournament? Well, I, th- I think for the players who have been coming back year after year, we know their habits. We know what they like. We know what hotel they like to stay in. We know what floor they like to stay in. Wow. We know what room number they won't stay in because <laughs> they're uh, superstitious. superstitious. Yeah. And we know their favorite restaurants. We make sure that they have reservations prior to. And now that um, you know, we follow Miami, a lot of the players come up earlier. Our first player arrived the Sunday night before while we were still building the site out. And uh, we've taken quite a few players to dinner to their favorite places or perhaps surprise them with a dessert or a nice bottle of wine okay. or, you know, just uh, ways to let them know we care. Yeah. And we try to greet as many of them at the airport ourselves. Um so and we know their families a lot of these players we've known since they were young girls you know 16 years later we've watched them grow up first met them with braces on their teeth yeah, now they're sure. now they're beautiful young women some have married and you know some have gone on to win kids probably at this well, point, we, yeah. we have we, we've patty had Patty was just here with her daughter Patty was here with her daughter and Bondarenko with her daughter and you know so we've um, it's, it's a real family oriented event yeah. and that's what we're all about so what, what are the things that i guess make you try to do to keep the i don't know i feel like this city reflects this tournament reflects the city it's in pretty well and i guess all tournaments do to some degree reflect yeah. the place where they come from this one especially i think with the wicker furniture on the courts and the general i don't know genteel nature of the crowd and everything do you guys do you sense that that you're trying to reflect the south or charleston more specifically and what you guys offer there's no doubt about it you know charleston being the number one destination in the in the u.s for uh travel and leisure yeah and and, yeah yeah, it's amazing and um we're not a big city we're but we're we're very intertwined with one another and uh we we all know one another there's there's not a time that you walk down king street and not see a familiar face and the players now feel that as well. A lot of them have been coming back year after year. They've built relationships with their fans. A lot, a lot of them stay with host families year after year. Some have gone to each other's weddings. Mm. And um, so it's just, it, it is family-oriented and friendship-oriented. And there's hugs, h- hello, there's hugs, goodbye. Yeah. There's consoling when a player's disappointed. Uh, with with their match play, so it's it's uh, something that we value really strongly, and yeah. we find that we're unique versus some of the other tournaments. What what is this? What is the year round effort for this tournament like? I mean, obviously you just pop up 
quote unquote once a week and you build up the right. site but it's a it's a 52 week a year gig I would think in terms of recruiting players in terms of making sure they're happy promoting the event preparing for next year's event it doesn't all just happen it doesn't happen overnight we're a small staff we have about 10 full time people we do all of our ticketing in house all of our food and beverages in house mm-hmm. um, sales and sponsorship it's unusual, I think, for a sporting event these days to have that sort of staff operationally. Every sign that you see on site is made by the staff. I'm out there in, in the shed along with <laughs> everyone else making signs. You're doing carpentry for the tournament, then? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. absolutely. You know, we're multi-talented. Sure. Um, so it's once this event is over, we pay the bills, and then we start uh, booking our hotel blocks for the players and for our VIPs, for the media, and um, it, it takes a lot of effort. We are constantly in touch with the players throughout the year. I go to other tournaments and I see them and we have dinner together. I speak with their agents, um, keenly watch the up-and-coming players. You know, tennis is evolving and, and it's now, I think, entering a new phase of Again, the 18, 19, 20-year-old yeah. athletes. Although, having said that, you still have some tremendous athletes who are now in their late 20s and early 30s. And mid-30s. And so it's building the relationships and getting to know each other. I was talking to Bob earlier in the week, and he was talking about being very excited that uh, Daria Kasakina and Gavrilova, Daria is both Daria, yeah. were uh, here because it was important for him to sort of get, uh, start to build the roots of a relationship with a player early in their career in the hopes that when they, I don't know, are someday top five in the world, number one in the world, winning Grand Slams, they'll want to keep coming back here. So uh, that makes sense. It, it makes total sense. Uh, it was... Two years ago, I was in Indian Wells, and I, I was having a late dinner at an Applebee's next to <laughs> the uh, hotel. And I saw Belinda Bensick was there with her team. And she had, um, I had gotten to know her a little bit. And at the end of the night, I just asked the waiter for her check. <laughs> and um, he brought it over, and then he went over to her and said, you know, you've been taken care of for the night. And... She was so excited, came over and said hello. She's not forgotten that, and every time I see her, she mentions that. And uh, like Gabby Dabrowski from Canada. I was up in Montreal, I bet it was eight years ago, and she she was a young girl. And we were casually just sitting next to another, started talking, and she said, well, someday, you know, I want to play pro tennis. And, and And I gave her my business card, and I said, well, you know, someday when you're ready. Here's my card. Call me. And I saw her here this week. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So that's pretty cool. So you just stay in yeah. touch and build relationships, and um, and it's fun. How, how, you guys are one of the biggest women's only tournaments in the world. Uh, definitely in the United States, one of the most successful and longest lasting. Right. How much? How much do you think that part of it influences how you manage the players or the relationships you build? Or I don't know if there's. I almost want to use the word sisterhood or something among the players or something like that here that, that makes this event and the tone. Because I know, right. obviously, in the past, Family Circles of, of Women's Oriented Magazine that was right. uh, the title sponsor, and I guess even Volvo probably is a brand that's probably, I'm guessing, has a larger female client base than a lot of automakers. So how right. much is that uh, something that's, and Dove, I think, in the past has been a sponsor here. So how much is that something that is a 
factor in how you guys think about this tournament? It's huge. Um, it's huge. It's uh, I like to think of it as girl power. Okay. Um, you know, it's I think our players are very confident, and um, they are so successful. And we have their core success at heart. We want them to be successful athletes. We want them to be successful business people. We want them to be healthy women. And they feel it. And that, that's what we're all about. You know, we have, from time to time, disappointing player withdrawals. Sure. Uh, Yelena Yankovic this week, for instance. Um, we're disappointed but what's most paramount to us is the fact that she's a healthy athlete, that she can continue her career as long as she wants, and that she can move on to the next, next event being 100%. And, um, you know, although she had to withdraw, she stayed in town. Yeah, I saw her on Tuesday, yeah. For several days because she wanted to be with us. Uh. And um, she had made a commitment to us to she and her mom to be at our ladies day luncheon which was girl talk and um it was important to her to fulfill that commitment even though she couldn't be on the court and i think that's part of the relationship that we have with these players is it's a it's a mutual commitment we're committed to them on every level and and then we see it returned from them as what, well. What are the challenges? Because you guys, the schedule's gotten moved around a little bit in the course of this event. There used to be a gap week right. between Miami and here. That was, I guess, Amelia Island or Ponte Vedra Beach. Yes. Got moved. Yeah. Uh, so now that's not there, I'm guessing the player list might be less certain. Or there might be more, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I, don't, I haven't looked at what it was before or now, but I'm guessing right. there could be more uncertainty with players who go very deep in Miami and maybe have also gone deep in Indian Wells being uncertain about that. So how, how do you guys... I guess just cross your fingers and hope for the best with that, or is it something that you can do more than I don't know to, to ensure? Because it, it, it can be a, it can be a tough ask for players sometimes. Uh, it's a challenge for all. In a row. It's a challenge for all of us. Yeah. It's a challenge for us as a tournament. It's a challenge for the players. They've been away from home for a long time. They've uh, had grueling weeks. There's a change of surface, and um, for players that haven't been as successful in Miami. They then have to fill in a gap before play starts here. Because of that, a lot of them are coming to Charleston earlier. Yeah. Our first player arrived the Sunday before we started. Yeah, the full eight days in advance. And yeah. eight days in advance. By Wednesday night, I would say we had 85% of our players here. Wow. And... That's really unusual for a tournament. It is. It's not a grand slam, yeah. Yeah, it's very unusual. They're here because they want to get the practice on the clay. They're here because they know we welcome them. It's hard. It's you know, it's it's hard for them, and it's heartwarming to us to know that they are committed to us. You know, we had six returning champions this year. That's loyalty. That 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 goes really deep. That means a lot to us, and. None of those women have to be here. They can go on and go home. They have Fed Cup the week after us. Yeah. And that's another issue that um, we all have to deal with, the players and the tournament. And um, I think they're here out of respect 
for our history. They're here um, because they have a good time and we take care of them. And our legacy uh, means a lot to them as a women's only event. Yeah. How is that legacy, I guess, sort of, how does it work local? I mean, you're here a lot of the year. Yes. Uh, so how does that, how does this tournament establish yourself in the community? Because it's, I, it's not one of the bigger cities in the U.S., so it wouldn't be the first place someone might guess that you would have the biggest women's only event in the world. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I, people don't think of, I don't think Charleston is being necessarily I don't know, a super feminist city or anything like that. No. But, but, it, but it does, has been very loyal to this tournament and the crowd you get. Yes. And the demographics here, there's clearly very high women's turnout among the crowd, you can tell. Right. Uh, how, how do you guys sustain that or how do you think that, that where did that come from? I think it's our relationship with the city. Yeah. Um, we try to give back as much as we can. We have a lot of programs that um, we work with the city. Uh, the MUSC Children's Hospital, we're very involved year-round. Um, we not only do a fundraiser for them during the Cup, but as a staff, we're there the second Wednesday of every night oh, wow. serving dinner to uh, the families at the Children's Hospital. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that means a lot to us as a staff to support them like that. We do a lot of inner city um, clinics. Uh, we, we, we have over 500 people that play out of this facility, 500 members of our city of Charleston tennis facility. Mm -hmm. Anybody can come out here and play on that stadium court. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing feeling, you know, to look up and think, ooh, wow, I'm on the same court as the greatest players in the world. Right. So, you know, we, we do a lot to give back because we get a lot for the city in return. What, what are you, what are you, last thing, what's your favorite part about this week when it rolls around each year? I think seeing the joy on the champion's face. Yeah. Um, whether it's a... Um, the first title for an up-and-coming player or whether it's the 30th title. Yeah. Um, I, it just is heartwarming and it makes us so proud and proud of the champion and pleased that we've done a good job. Well, thank you very much, Eleanor, for Thanks, being here. Thanks, Ben. So thank you very much. Eleanor, and thank you all for listening to this episode 150 of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can follow along with us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Uh, send us emails about upcoming episodes or questions about anything to no challenges remaining at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes and any other podcasting app of your choice. Uh, get the episodes delivered automatically. Leave us reviews on iTunes. We appreciate that quite a bit as well. The executive producers of No Challenges Remaining are Francisco Resendez of TennisBalls.com and Tal Woolley. I also want to give a plug to something I'm hoping to be able to do on the show in early May, timed around the Eurovision Song Contest for the show. I'm assembling, have been assembling a list of tennis music music inspired by tennis, about tennis, by tennis players, whatever, for an NCR Vision song contest of sorts to be in a future episode. If you guys have submissions for that, please send them in on Twitter, on email, whatever, to build up your favorites. And we'll have, well, I'm not exactly sure the format it'll take, but it should be hopefully amusing slash ridiculous.
just like Eurovision. So <laughs> love it. Those are my goals for the spring. Uh, Courtney, do you have any feelings about anything? <laughs> I have so many feelings about so many things at all times. I guess like what I will, I guess for this rant rave edition, I will <laughs> um, just kind of focus in on my raving, uh, all raves uh, for the city of Portland and continue to be its ultimate ambassador in trying to convince tennis people to just take vacations there and to go there and to spend time there because it really is just a, a great place and a good place to unwind. It's so casual, very easy to get around with all the public transportation and everything. Um, the food is phenomenal. The coffee is great. The beer is wonderful. The people are really nice. I mean, there's really nothing wrong with Portland at all. <laughs> I keep looking for it, um, but I've yet to find it. But um, but if anybody is ever interested in, in, you know, taking a few days off and just wanting to have a nice chill out, you know, weekend or, or long weekend, extended weekend. I just, I really just can't say enough about the city of Portland. And um, this year happened to be the four year anniversary of a trip that my friend Steph and I had taken to Portland four years ago, right around this exact same time. And it was like one night we were in the hotel room, like probably decompressing from eating an, an inordinate amount of food um, and a commercial came on for, uh, the Portland Thorns, which were at that time, the, the, it was the first, um, year of the National Women's Soccer League here in the States, uh, professional soccer league. And we had absolutely, I mean, I consider myself a pretty big women's soccer fan, but for whatever reason, I had no idea that this thing was actually happening. <laughs> so we were just like in the hotel room, we saw this commercial, there was a game the next day, which was their first game. And we were like, oh, do you want to go? Yeah, we don't have nothing planned. So we like walked down to Providence Park and saw all these people chanting and screaming. I was like, what? And I'd never seen anything like that before and bought a ticket. And we've been season ticket holders ever since, even though I haven't, I didn't go to a game last year, but I was a season ticket holder. Um, and most likely this game on Sunday is the only game that I'll be able to go to this year because, you know, tennis. Um, work. Yeah, exactly. Work stuff. But it was it was very cool. And, and it was um, one of the it's been very fun to kind of watch that team and, and the league itself grow, especially as one who is obviously very involved in women's sports and, you know, uh, works for the you know biggest and most successful professional women's quote unquote league in the world in the WTA. Um, it's It's a fascinating thing to kind of follow the NWSL and see like how they intend to market, how they intend to try to become a viable business, um, uh, how they need big stars while trying not to rely on their big stars, all of that. So all of this stuff has been like jumbled in my head that I just kind of was like, I don't know, spent a lot of my time in Portland kind of like kicking around in my noggin. Uh, but yeah, it was a great, great time. And if anybody ever needs Portland recommendations, you know where to find me. I can I can give you some 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 uh, some good joints. You mentioned that you couldn't find anything with Portland. And I've never been to Portland. I'm hoping to get to go there sometime soon. Courtney's obviously been proselytizing about it quite <laughs> a bit. But my so my main exposure exposure to court of to my main exposure to Portland is through Portlandia. Right. So is there nothing about the Portlandianess of Portland <laughs> of Portland that is obnoxious ever, or is it all totally tolerable in real life? I find it all really tolerable. I mean, like there well, I mean, I guess it depends on how straight laced you are. People have to remember that I my hometown is San Francisco slash Oakland, the Bay Area, where we're kind of weird too, you know, sure. like, so I, the difference between for me to go from SF to Portland 
and the people, especially like kind of the 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 weirder side of Portland, doesn't really come across. And it's not something that I really see. To me, I was talking to um, a store clerk about this because she was saying that there were had been a lot of people from San Francisco coming and going recently. And I was like, yeah, I mean, for me as a San Franciscan, I feel like going to Portland is like exploring a different part of the city, of my city that I'm just unfamiliar with. Like that's how yeah. familiar it feels to me as a San Franciscan. Now, if you are from a city that does not have DNA that is even similar to that, maybe it would be a little bit more jarring. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, you walk down the street, there are crazy people shouting at all hours and you're like not really sure what's going on, but that happens in San Francisco too. And you just cross the street and walk the, you know, you just keep your distance. It's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, the Uber drivers are very fine. They're fine. They're funny. Some of them are too talkative. I don't really care. Um, it's very hipster, uh, which can manifest itself in good and bad ways. Sometimes it's like people are so incredibly nice um, and just charming and, and quirky. And then sometimes they're like incredibly like hipster snooty. Um, but I get that where I'm from. So it, to me, it's not jarring. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, if you're from another city, it would be it would stand out more. But for me, it doesn't. Very fair. Um, my I'm not sure if mine is a rant or rape, but it isn't about a different city in america um and that city is philadelphia Uh, (laughs) where um i suppose you probably know i'm a big hockey fan hockey was my first love in sports really i played hockey from when i was like uh, six to 18 as a goalie and i grew up i was born i was raised to be a philadelphia flyers fan because my dad uh, lived in philly when the flyers were their heyday in the mid 70s and were winning their cups and everything they've been perennially really good pretty much for most of my lifetime except for now they're like kind of mired in a bit of mediocrity and so but even still i thought this playoffs would go better than it has and well it was one of those like hey nothing to lose like we got it we weren't supposed to even get in the playoffs so let's just have fun with it and it managed to like completely (laughs) implode even by that very low standard of just being unfortunate um but the i don't even know where i'm going with this just to say that i think philadelphia's reputation as being the Sodom and Gomorrah of sports fandom is somewhat overblown. And there's a lot of confirmation bias when anything ever happens in Philadelphia that, Oh, this is so typical of Philly and people don't keep as good track of things that happen in other cities. I mean, there's been plenty of games and I know in DC Redskins or caps or whatever, where things people have thrown things onto the playing surface and it happens. And in, <laughs> in Philadelphia, because they were throwing these stupid little bracelets, first of all, which were like a give out thing. And second of all, kept doing it in the face of like knowing that they were going to hurt their team and get penalties for it. So it almost had this civil disobedience vibe to it by the end that I just, I don't know, part of me, I, I shouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did. But it was not like, it was embarrassing that it was stupid, but it was not like violent or subhuman the way people were trying to make it out to be. It was just like people being stupid. And I find stupid endearing in the right context, I guess, especially when it comes to Philadelphia sports, which are, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that it was the cleanest discussion of anything but <laughs> just know that like philadelphia i still think that you're um uh what's the word for it uh, non-awful <laughs> don't, don't feel sad <laughs> non-awful right so, that's that's about as good as i'm gonna offer yeah that, that's that's about as far as you can go i think uh and still uh, keep your argument intact i mean philly 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 fandom like sports fandom um it, it to me is the closest thing that America has to like idiotic 
like European football. Soccer hooliganism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hooliganism where I'm not even going to imply that level of violence, but just kind of like the idiocy just for idiocy's sake. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that was the thing about the throwing. So Philly fans got mad at the Flyers game. They they threw bracelets and they got like a the team had Flyers were playing terrible. The game was like pretty much already over. Yeah. So, and they started throwing their giveaway bracelets onto the ice. And, and like no one was going to keep the bracelets afterwards. So, I mean, it's like, like such you know. a stupid giveaway anyway. Like, you know it what really I mean? Is. Like nobody wants it, the thing that you're giving them. So, of course, they're going to be inclined to chuck it as opposed to you give them like a. They gave them t-shirts, t-shirts too. Nobody threw, nobody threw the t-shirts. Or like limited edition bobbleheads. No one will throw a bobblehead. Um, so yeah, so it, it just, every time that stuff happens in Philly, I'm just like kind of reminded of, of, yeah, like European. No, but it, it, it totally is like Europe. You're right. The, there's nothing that bad. It just, it's not. And it does happen everywhere. And like you mentioned San Francisco, was it a San Francisco or LA fan who killed the other one? I was, I think it was a one. San Francisco fan that killed an LA fan. Yeah. So, the, but no one's like, oh, there goes San Francisco again. Right. But at the same time, I mean, at the, you know, like. Like Oakland Raider fans sure. are legit an armpit of hell. <laughs> Minions. Probably true. They are terrible. And it's not a family say a family environment. And you don't see parents taking their kids to a Raider game. Um and uh, you know, it, it, that is a very specific fan base that uh the culture of that fan base is it just is self perpetuating. Right. And that is kind of a similar thing with, with, you know, you would say like with Philly. Uh, no, it is. It definitely is. Like I would not recommend Philly for like an opposed. I would not recommend ever to anybody to go to a Flyers game or an Eagles game. Um, those are the main two. Maybe Philly's a little bit less so. And there are no 76ers fans anymore. So <laughs> who even cares about them? Like in an opposing jersey and be like even the slightest bit obnoxious because you will get some sort of head injury. Yeah. And that's not great, but it's just sort of how it is. And it's the way it is in a lot of other countries and a lot of other in soccer. Fa- I mean, fandom, and I spent a lot of time this weekend, like, contemplating the idea of sports fandom and, and what it, I don't know, just in general. I was doing a lot of thinking by myself <laughs> uh, up in Portland. And, um, and uh, you know, like, because uh, one of the big storylines on Sunday at the Thorns game was that it was, so the Thorns used to have Alex Morgan and Alex Morgan was traded to an expansion team, the Orlando Pride, um, for a butt ton of awesome players that our team is so much better off without Alex. I'm going to totally admit that, but I love Alex, so it was like a bummer. Um, but one of the big question marks going into Sunday's game was like whether or not Portland, which has like one of the most fervent women's soccer fan bases in the NWSL, if not the most, uh, was going to boo her. And, ha- and if it was going to get ugly at all, because apparently I was like, really, this is a thing that we're discussing. Um, and it was like kind of like that weird, like back and forth in my head of like, well, I mean, I guess I mean, she's a player that, you know, left. And then I guess they have the right to boo her. But like, do they should they? And it was one of those moments where like going into the game, I remember thinking like this is like an going to be an interesting um moment for the thorns fans to kind of show their character as to like what kind of fan base is this are you gonna you know because they booed hope solo before and and you know they, they don't have a problem booing players but like a former player that seems to be something that they wouldn't do and so they ended up left not. on pretty good terms right didn't leave on bad terms didn't did leave on bad terms but she was never really embraced i think by the portland um community my my argument or my my thesis on that is basically you know, she was too mainstream for hipster Portland. 
Um, sure. And so they they just never were to rally around her and, and really embrace her. And she didn't perform as well as, as maybe was expected. Um, but she left because her husband plays for the Orlando men's team. So it wasn't like she bailed because she was like, I don't want to be here. Um, and she kind of like almost teared up in her press conference talking about it, um, about how Portland didn't feel like home anymore. But um, but yeah, so, it you know. It's interesting to see kind of like how fan, like the character of each fan base kind of like manifests itself and when it, it is at its best and when it's at its worst. Yeah. So this was us at our best and worst <laughs> in episode 150. Uh, we'll be back with you next week. And then I guess the week after that, we will be in Europe. Yeah. From that point on. So only one more state sh- stateside show for a while. Have you booked your flights yet? I have. Have you? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I need to get on that. It's literally you, on my to-do list today, and I was like, crap. It's like 10 days away. I know. I have the hotel secured, at least. So the flight the hotel is always more of an issue for me. But, um, yeah, I just uh, – I've been busy. I've been on vacation. What do you want from me? Oh, so. Okay. <laughs> we'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye. There's a southern accent where I come from. The Indians call it country. The Yankees call it dumb. So